things up a little bit every year. Well, I believe this is our first open mic podcast live on Facebook. So welcome and welcome to my uh, cohort, Kevin Dietz. Thanks for being with us again, Kevin. And we are really excited for our guest today, Chief James Craig, who's who's um, with us live. Thank you so much for being here. I think Great to be everybody, here. Everybody is uh was worried about you, is worried about you. Please give us an update how you are feeling after the diagnosis of COVID-19 about a week ago. Well, you know, I got to tell you, thank you for allowing me to come on. And I appreciate so many well wishers, both here in the city of Detroit, across this country. I've gotten calls, texts, social media uh, messages from folks from as far away as Los Angeles, Cincinnati, Portland, Maine, and and, uh, certainly my home here in, in Detroit, the whole state. But I got to tell you, it's uh, compared to a week ago, as I said, off the air, uh, night and day. Um, I started out, you know, I've suffered like so many Michiganders with seasonal allergies and um, no different. I was going through it, didn't think much of it. And it wasn't until I had this continued cough and I was encouraged. You probably need to go get tested. And within one day of the test, it came back positive. And then after that, that's when I really started to have symptoms, uh, lost my appetite, fever increased, uh, chills, noticeable chills. I was very, um, you know, some people get extremely hot uh, without experiencing those chills. So I went through that, became very lethargic, didn't want to eat anything, uh, lost all my energy. And so I battled through that for a couple of days. Uh, and then slowly uh, my strength started to come back. And I started to work out uh, like I normally do, but very easy, led into it. And so I'm at a place right now where I'm probably, uh, it feels like I'm 85%. I feel that way. Did you lose your uh, sense of smell or taste? I did not. What's interesting, Kevin, uh, I know a lot of people that I've talked to lost smell and taste. I just lost my appetite. And I've heard others that lost their appetite as well. Um, some experience increase in fever, but in my case, I had a lot of chills. And my temperature never elevated over 102, between 101 and 102 when it was up. But then it would go right back down to 98. Um, but I was clearly fatigued. So take us through what's going on with the Detroit Police Department. It, and it's been all over the national news. It's one of the hardest hit police departments in the country with hundreds and hundreds of members being quarantined. People are, are, are unfortunately have passed away in your department. Where do we stand today, Friday? Well, I got some good news. Uh, we still have a number of our sworn and civilian who are quarantined. Uh, you know, this goes back to the 16th. Uh, what we did early on when the crisis began, we took a very aggressive posture in that any member of the department sworn in a civilian uh, in contact with someone who was COVID positive, uh, that we would quarantine them. Whether they had symptoms or not was not the issue. Uh, we were more about the business of making sure we took care of the concerned employee as well as other employees. You know, no one understood how this disease impacted. So 
we took a very uh, aggressive posture. And as you know, back then, two weeks ago, testing wasn't rapid. Uh, sometimes results wouldn't come back in seven to 10 days even. And so we had people quarantined that were asymptomatic in some instances, no symptoms. Uh, some started to develop symptoms. Uh, but the key was, you know, taking every precaution necessary to protect our employees, protect the community. And we did that. So as of today, we have a total of 478 that are quarantined. And that's not just police officers. In fact, we have 369 sworn that are quarantined and 109 civilians that are quarantined. Now, in comparison to where we were probably several days ago, a significant reduction. Let me tell you what the good news is. So we have returned since we implemented the rapid uh, testing, which you get a result back between 10 and 15 minutes, 450 have returned, wow. 450. And why that's so important, you know, of course, when we started quarantining members of the department, particularly when you talk about the swarm, we were starting to have significant impacts on, on several of our stations. The good news was there was never no loss in service, no service disruption. Uh, we proactively early on during this crisis began to talk about the what ifs. And when you talk about best practices, uh, we anticipated the worst. So much so we anticipated what if we had to close the station and what that would look like. Um, so what we did do uh, we looked at our support units, our specialized support units. Uh, we ended up taking staff from those units and moving them into those areas most impacted uh, by the quarantines. So it worked for us. Uh, again, we had no service disruptions. Uh, and another great example, I must say, uh, we heard about the, the tragic loss of one of our 911 call takers uh, so because we didn't know uh, the nature of his illness he was off work sick ended up going to the hospital uh, he ended up passing but we didn't know why at the same day that this occurred the hospital came back and said yes he was COVID positive so we then had to quickly go in make assessments of our communication center now that's very significant and I'm gonna tell you why if communication shuts down, that cuts our lifeline off to the community, the 911. And so we shut it down, but the good news was we planned, when we opened our new $8 million communication center, we were able to quickly open up our, what I call fallback. Uh, we anticipated that in the middle of a crisis, whether it's a terror attack that would have a direct impact on communications, we would need to have a backup, and we had that. And so when we closed our center, the transition staff out into our backup center, um, no disruption to handling emergency calls for service. So again, that was just another example of how this department proactively responded uh, without losing um, emergency calls for service. I will tell you, years before our new center, here's the way it would have looked. Communications goes down, and the best that community members could do is call their neighborhood police station 
and say, look, I got an emergency at my house. Can you send a unit? And we would dispatch calls from our stations uh, to officers in the field to get them to go to the location where help was needed. That's not a good way of doing business. So again, that worked very well, um, but also what worked very well is anticipating the impact of the quarantines and being able to shift staff from, I wouldn't call it non-essential, but support functions. Because let's face it, the most important thing we can do uh, as a police department is to respond to 911 calls. So it's gotta you, be a lit Go ahead, Kevin. I was gonna say, so, so did you um, change the policy of which calls you were gonna respond to? I mean, here you are, you're trying to minimize contact with people. You're trying to follow the CDC guidelines as best you can. Um, did, did you go right to emergency calls only until you got up on your feet or, or, or where are you at in that process in the beginning and where are you at now? You know, Kevin, that's a great question because uh, that was something we talked about on the what ifs. You know, one of the things I was poised to do, and certainly uh, I'm no stranger to that, you know, my conditioning from Los Angeles having dealt with large scale critical incidents, whether it was an earthquake that impacts the entire city or civil unrest following Rodney King, uh, I was a good student and I watched on what we needed to do whether it was a full mobilization where we go to 12 hour shifts and then only handling 911 calls. We were poised to do that. However, we didn't have to. And so the good news is we didn't eliminate any category of our calls, you know, for service. Uh, that remained. Uh, we didn't have to close the police station. Again, those were things we talked about. And so, but what we did do is we just moved staff around. Uh, we moved uh, probably a total of about 80 uh, support unit personnel into our stations that were most impacted, like the 9th Precinct on the east side, the 8th Precinct took a pretty substantial hit. Uh, and then, of course, communications, uh, we, had, we lost some people because of the COVID exposure there as well. So it all worked out. So with less police officers on the ground, you know, you'd think that um, with the mandatory shutdown by Governor Whitmer, that crime would be down right now because every, or at least the home invasions would be down. Every, you know, people are home. Um, tell us what's really happening on the streets of Detroit right now with regards to crime. You know, we did see an uptick. I want to say a weekend ago. I don't have the stats in front of me. I can tell you, it seems like over the last 48, 72 hours, uh, things have been relatively quiet. Uh, when we did see an uptick, it was a traditional violence, some of it associated with narcotics, some of it uh, domestic. Uh, but again, it's kind of leveled off. And so that's the good news for now. But when you say, I don't mean, but, but, Chief, when you say uptick, are you talking about normal levels of crime stats or are you saying like is it going up from the last couple of weeks of it being down well initially at the 16th when we started the quarantines and the governor's order we did see uh, a lull and then all of a sudden it, it, it i don't know if it had anything to do with the weekend where we started to see warm weather and um, we saw an increase of crime but again that's dropped off again we're not not paying attention to that. We're still very active, very much involved. 
uh, in the crime fighting business. I mean, some places are reporting, um, I don't know if you would call it significant reductions. Uh, again, we did realize that for a moment, went up and leveled off again. So right now I can't tell you definitively uh, that it's COVID uh, because people are restricted to their homes doesn't mean that there's not going to be crime inside the home. It doesn't mean that individuals who want to go out and purchase narcotics uh, in the black market, uh, that there may not be violence associated with that. That's going to happen, and, and we're attentive to that. You know, one of the things we've done now that we've returned 450, uh, we have also, and I didn't say this earlier, we've also started placing uh, those specialized officers back into those specialized assignments. We do not want to lose traction on addressing violent crime. Chief, I was looking at some numbers and it looked like in the past week or so, we had more like homicides and shootings than a year ago for this same week, it, which is kind of surprising to me because I would, I would think like nobody's out, there's not much crime being committed at all. And, and if there were, like you said, you know, you can't stop crime completely. Um, that it wouldn't be anywhere near just a normal week out there or normal averages. So that really surprised me. Did that, I know you guys do a lot of uh, response based on numbers. Did that cause you guys to shift in, in the strategy at all? Yeah, I mean, we, we're constantly looking at, we look at crime every day. I mean, that's something we do. We put out a, a, a real-time report. We can look at the day prior, uh, current year to date. Uh, we saw a disturbing, ten, uh, a disturbing trend that started uh, in the last quarter of last year where we started to see an increase in violence. Uh, and then it, it certainly continued over at the beginning of the year. It wasn't until COVID that it really kind of dropped off. Well, I should say before that, because we certainly put a strategy, and, and you probably remember me talking about uh, the violence associated with narcotics, particularly in the black market. You know, many believe that, well, you know, marijuana is legalized now. It's going to eliminate the black market. That's just not so. And many were surprised by my statements. All you got to do is go back and look at Denver, Colorado, when they legalized uh, marijuana. Uh, my colleague, who was a chieftain, R.C. White, he told me, he says, the black market violence continues. Crime in the black market continued. And, and there's a, a simple reason for that. You know, when you talk about pricing and costs, you know, black market uh, sales, you can purchase marijuana at a, at a much lower rate than you can uh, in the legal market. Because in the legal market, you got all the costs associated, such as the brick and mortar, the taxation, uh, the regulations and, and testing of the marijuana. And so the black market is lucrative. And so it's not what people think that it's going to drive the black market out of business. Uh, the competition is clear. People will continue to do that. But this, this is, you know, we can talk about this. this. This is certainly a separate piece. But, and I talked extensively about it at the end of last year, and we had put strategies in place that really um, had a positive impact on eradicating that violence because we knew that the sellers and buyers, uh, in many cases, were armed. 
How do you feel about a curfew? Do you think a curfew would help stop some of what we're talking about or not necessarily? You know, I don't know. I haven't given thought to that. You know, I think what we're doing now, uh, certainly we've taken an assertive position on uh, groups that are gathering, warning, citing. Uh, we have seen compliance. Uh, you know, you've seen some of probably the social media videos of people congregating in large numbers at gas stations, making a mockery of the warning of the police. Uh, we've responded to that. We get tips from the community. Uh, and generally speaking, people comply. They're not resistant. Uh, we just have to continue to remind the importance of not just social distancing, but stay home. I saw that uh, you guys responded to maybe 2,000 calls of, of large gatherings. Are you surprised that people are, are were ignoring the message to that to that point? That's a lot of calls, even for a big city. Well, you know, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not going to use your numbers. If that's the numbers you got, that, that may I, be. I, Again, I've I, been out, I've been kind of off the grid for a while, but, um, you know, uh, I'm, a, I'm concerned about what's happening right now. And what I see going on right now is people are responding. Yes, there are going to be those that are going to challenge us. People are going to call us and say, hey, someone's, we have one, somebody was having a barbecue. Uh, where a number of people we were able to shut that down. Uh, uh, someone set up basketball hoop at a gas station, and a number of people came to do that. So uh, we've been uh, very assertive about addressing, and, and people are responding. The department is doing their job, and I believe it's having an impact on compliance. So we do thank the Detroiters who are out there, and, and most of what we've seen is young people. For some strange re reason, I think some of them believe uh, that this disease does not impact them. Uh, this disease does not discriminate. It doesn't matter who you are, socioeconomically, your race, religion. Uh, we're all vulnerable. And maybe it's a to touch off topic, but I noticed there was a, a run on ammunition and gun sales went through the roof. Uh, um, do, you, do you think there's a concern when people are rushing uh, to buy weapons because of uh, some sort of panic, whether it's, you know, following a terrorist attack or something like this. Um, you think um, people maybe don't get the same kind of training they might otherwise? You know, I've heard it was a run on ammo and probably a, a run on, you know, purchasing weapons. You know, there's a lot of fear uh, associated with the unknown, whether it's a terror attack, in this case, a pandemic, and people don't know what to think. Uh, people are wondering whether or not uh, there's going to be looting and violence uh, that's running rampant. Uh, there's nothing right now that suggests that's going to happen. Uh, it's just like toilet paper. Does toilet paper stop COVID-19? And, and so why? I mean, sometimes it's this frenzy of once it's out there and you know the media helped perpetuate it at times and people see it and they respond to it so there's a lot of fear associated with this uh it's understandable i mean i'm not being critical uh, but that doesn't mean that you know the place is just gonna it's out of control it is not can you hear me now chief got you loud and clear 
Chief, I'm, you know, when we've been hearing all, seeing all these headlines about, you know, your police department and the chief gets sick like yourself. I'm so, we're so happy uh, that the prayers have worked and, and, and Absolutely. That, that you're getting better. And I hope you get back to the office soon because I know how hard you work and I know it's driving you crazy. How's the morale of the officers and do they have everything they need to do what they're doing? Do they have enough PPE? Do, are they, are they, do they have enough equipment to do all the things that you're asking them to do? You know, I got to tell you, that's a great question. And it comes down to one basic thing. It's called leadership. And uh, again, you heard me talk at the beginning of this broadcast, the importance of doing whatever we can to make sure we keep our men and women safe. And, you know, we took an aggressive posture on quarantines, probably more aggressive than most places. In fact, I know we did. And it had an impact on our staffing, but again, it was the right thing to do because the message is clear. We're taking care of you, wanna keep you safe, and what good is it if we're non-responsive and we can't make a decision to get people out of the workplace who could be impacted? And so they see that. Um, and you're right, the equipment is very important. Uh, we've been very fortunate to have the PPEs, to have the gloves, to have the masks. And now as part of our strategy of keeping our people safe, um, they're wearing masks when they're out in the field. Uh, we've modified our roll call. They don't set roll call. We're embracing social distancing. Uh, we're doing a lot of uh, communication with those in the field via electronically. They're getting packets when they show up to work and go out into the field. Again, keeping social distancing uh, first and foremost. Ford Motor Company was so generous uh, when they donated 250 shields uh, for some of our staff, 250. And so what we're doing is deploying them in the stations that when people come into the station and there's a potential for someone to be COVID positive, they can deploy the shield. If we have to make an arrest and we put that person in the car, it's a large plastic shield that covers the face. They can wear that. Uh, and then uh, just the idea of continuous sanitizing of these police vehicles that are in service 24 hours, seven days a week. Or anytime we go into the detention center uh, and we process an arrestee, that car is thoroughly clean uh, while the arrestee is being processed. So these are some of the steps that we're taking uh, to really keep our morale high, letting our folks know that uh, we're serious about their safety and the safety of the community. Uh, the union leadership has been very much involved in those discussions. And so that's worked out very well. And so I'm confident that leadership does matter. Our response, quick response, makes a difference. Uh, and the good news is many of our officers who've been out in quarantine, many of them wanted to come back sooner. And, and thank God we have the testing now that we can turn it around much quicker. Uh, but they want to get back out and uh, be with their colleagues and uh, serve this community. So, so all of the people that are quarantined, over 400 by your account still, they're working through the process of this quick COVID test right now to get them back on the, on the force? Absolutely. I mean, some of them are going through that. Again, as I said early on, uh, we have people quarantined that 
may be asymptomatic, may have it, and until they've been tested, we don't know. Someone asymptomatic, because they don't have symptoms, can go out in the field and infect their partner. So we don't want that. And that was why we took such an aggressive posture early on. And candidly, I think it's had a positive impact on where we are today with the number of people that are quarantined. I think soon, and I don't have a timeline for you, I think we'll continue to see reductions in the numbers of quarantine. Uh, but because we do have rapid testing, we certainly we may see initially an increase of those who test positive. Uh, and so we're testing more officers now uh, because we want to know and we want to keep everyone safe. You know, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but right now, of those who are COVID, uh, we have 12 members of our department that are currently in the hospital. I did not know that's a, I did not hear that number earlier. Yeah, 12 are in the hospital. Wow. Uh, we're hoping and praying that uh, they get out. You know, when people ask me, even in my own situation, uh, having tested positive and being quarantined at home, uh, I look at it as a blessing because I know too many, as all of, as you both know, that you know there are many who test positive and end up in the hospital. Some mm -hmm. never make it home, and some do. And then there are others who are positive who are at, who are at home fighting this deadly disease. Some who have been bedridden for weeks. They cannot get up out of the bed. So when I think of my situation, um, I feel blessed and certainly I have a testimony. Um, and I got to believe, you know, prayer and, and certainly my fitness regimen for so many years uh, may have had an impact. I, I guess when this is all said and done, doctors, the researchers uh, will be able to say who was most impacted by this deadly disease and why. Well, on that point, you know, we're reading a ton about Detroit and how hard hit the African-American community is. And I saw something right before we came on today that 54 people in Detroit alone died today. And so, and and most are African-Americans. Do you have any inkling or well, any you know, clue? I, I want to say something because I've, I've had conversations both with local and national media, uh, media and Every journalist goes down the path of race. And let me just say this. So we talk about Detroit. Uh, it's no secret that when you compare Detroit to other cities, we probably have the largest African-American population. Uh, we have 83%, I think is the last count. 83%. Detroit is one of the top centers for uh, COVID. Is it because it's black? As I said earlier in my conversation, this disease does not discriminate. Um, they're very affluent. They have been afflicted. We have professional athletes that have tested positive. Uh, just look at the police department. You got police officers, you got everybody of every rank, including the chief of police. So I don't personally like the race conversation. I just think this is a disease that sees no race. It sees no economic status. You know, many, uh, I've read so much. I'm trying to figure out what should I believe. But I think it's premature. We don't really understand how this disease is passed. 
we have an idea. We talk about surfaces. We talk about airborne. But I have never, I don't think any of us have ever seen something impact so many people in such a short time. And then how the disease escalates to the point where some people are overcome by it. There's a lot we just don't have answers to. You talk about uh, we're going to learn a lot from all this. Are there any things, and you're, you're such a prolific planner anyway, uh, uh, is there anything that you've noticed already that you're going to have to change to your crisis management plan going forward because of things you learned from COVID-19? Well, you know, I don't care. You know, I had a chance to talk to uh, in one of these Zoom meetings with police chiefs all over the country. People are trying to learn from us in some instances. I think New York, certainly, where they have many more police than we do, I, I think they have something, well, at least several days ago, I think it was 1,300 that were COVID positive. I, I'm not absolutely certain on that number. Uh, but I will tell you, when I look at how we responded with our communication center, how we responded to our staffing, uh, I really believe that there are others that can learn from us. Uh, you know, this crisis, in many respects, is no different than any crisis that a police department may encounter. If you talk about a large-scale terror attack, uh, I use the earthquake that impacted Los Angeles in the 90s, uh, the civil unrest, the idea is being in a constant state of readiness, uh, and one thing that we do uh, is all, I always talk about the what ifs. If something happens in Boston, I remember when Boston had the attack during their marathon, mm -hmm. we wanted to know how it happened and what subsequent safety measures they put in place. We didn't have any information that we were going to be attacked, but we use a lot of what we learned from Boston. We use a lot what we learn from other major cities that have major impacts so that when a crisis comes, and it will, how are we going to respond? So when I look at our response to COVID-19, I truly believe that uh, we are one of the leaders in response. I think the key thing, if, if I could you know, point to one thing that I wish we had early on, the rapid testing. But we didn't have it, didn't exist. Uh, it was certainly the, the mayor's foresight and understanding that that was a, an obstacle for us, was able to make contact and, and, and get that. And we were one of the first major cities to have it. That's a big issue. Had we had it from the onset, uh, we would probably have a different conversation now concerning um, the people that were quarantined. But again, 450 returned. Uh, is an exciting number. A week ago, we were talking about 12 being returned. 12. So we have really made some key strides in a short amount of time. And I'm not suggesting that we are waving that flag of success right now uh, because we don't know what's around the corner. Do you, do you 
maybe you never got this close, but would you have considered if you had uh, even more people quarantined to call in on some of your friends from the federal government or the suburb sheriff's departments to come in and help in the city of Detroit? Is that something that's in one of your master plans if things were to get so bad? Yeah, that's certainly uh, a part of our master planning. Uh, you know, when we talk about, we call it mutual aid, uh, and that's common in every city across America. Uh, that was something we talked about in the what ifs. Uh, it, it has not come to that, uh, but we do talk about it. We have relationships with our partners uh, that in the event, uh, we do it now. Uh, many times uh, other cities reach out to us um, when it comes to a critical incident. You know, we're the largest police department in the state of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And we certainly handle more critical incidents than any other police department in the state. Uh, and I'm talking about our special response team. Uh, we handle a lot of critical incidents and there are other cities that sometimes need our assistance. And in the one instance that happened late last year, when we were on a standoff for three days, uh, because we needed to give relief uh, to our men and women who work SRT, uh, we had a great relationship with our state police, with our Eastern Wayne uh, SWAT team, who greatly assisted us so that we could relieve uh, our unit. Imagine being on a standoff three days. We can't have the same officers out there. This is not safe. So this is something that we do as a, as a regular uh, strategy uh, to augment our staffing. Well, I think by all accounts, um, you guys are doing a great job. I, I, everything that I read and the fact that you've been home for over a week, um, you know, we're getting some Facebook messages here, how much people appreciate you. I just saw a couple pop up. I don't know if you can and see that. I just and say I, to them, thank you uh, so much. I, I'll tell you, if I can point to a couple of things, it's just uh, folks in this, uh, this region who really have reached out to me supported me, prayed for me, uh, really has gone a long way in my recovery. Uh, when statements are being made, Chief, we need you to come back to work, we need your leadership, uh, certainly really motivates me in a, in a big way. Well, you sure look good and sound good. And I, I thank you. Know, I know you've been doing it from home and I'm sure they're going to love to see you. You know, it's interesting. So many people are working from home these days. And as you're talking, you know, you guys really can't work from home. All your officers, you know, you all these people quarantined. It's hard to do police work from your living room. Now, as a well, leader like you, I know that your energy because I'm home, I'm leading 150 people. I know that's possible. But your police officers, we need them on the streets. And it, and it sure feels like, you know, Detroit is not missing a beat when it comes to law enforcement. And that's the that's just my take on it. I'm seeing messages. I am seeing people feeling the same way. So thank you for everything you do. Thank you for that. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, but I got to tell you, you know, when you're in these executive level positions, you know, there are things that we can do. We have uh, a number of command and executive level meetings over the course of a week with updates with our entire command staff. So there's a lot of things that we're doing, even though uh, I've been quarantined with COVID, you know, I'm still making decisions. 
uh, we're still moving the organization forward. But really, I just want to take a moment to really thank those who don't have this option. And that's those men and women on the front line, those police officers, those sergeants, those lieutenants who are out in the field who don't have the option to do this. They just don't. And then I, I got to say thank you to my brothers and sisters in the fire department mm -hmm. who are also on the front lines. And last but not least, certainly our medical professionals. If we didn't know how important they were, we certainly know now. And I know they're being stretched in, in so many ways that we can only imagine. I've heard the horror stories. And uh, really, when you talk about a medal, uh, these are individuals who should re receive some kind of medal for both bravery. I mean, they're, they're coming in, fighting a good fight to save lives, and they're leaving their families, and they're returning homes knowing there's a risk uh, that their families could be impacted by this. I think that's one of those silver linings that are gonna come out of this, the gratitude for police officers and firefighters and doctors and nurses and bus drivers and grocery, oh, yes. store, and grocery store clerks. And um, my kids put cards out for the UPS drivers and the mail people and the FedEx drivers. And you look at people, just the people at the grocery store. I mean, you look at them differently now. They're putting their, their life at risk to make yes. sure you have food and yes. to make sure your packages are delivered. It's it's hopefully one of those things that are gonna uh, be a blessing that come out of this because not there's not too many so far, but the gratitude factor, yeah. I feel it. And I think a lot of people do. And, and I think for sure for police officers and people who are keeping us safe um, on the front line as well. Right. You know, I'll tell you, Mike, and, and Kevin, I, I sometimes I sit back, a lot of people ask me this question and say, you know, are your officers afraid of this unknown? Well, you know, fear is good. Uh, I would be lying to you if you asked me the question, so how did you feel, Chief, when you were notified you were COVID positive? I felt like I was punched, knocked out. I didn't know how to respond. You know, when you look at the news every day and so many people are succumbing to, to COVID, the first thing that goes to your mind is what's gonna happen next? And then some people are saying to you that, uh, well, we're gonna watch you closely because when, not if, you need to go to the hospital. And I'm thinking, well, what are you saying? I'm, I'm not accepting this. And so when you think about being a police officer, firefighter, you know, we're supposed to be tough, uh, but we're human too. Uh, and fear is healthy. Uh, you know, when you're in top leadership positions, I can tell you, uh, I remember, and I always tell this story uh, to new sergeants and lieutenants. I was a young sergeant in Los Angeles, and I was probably two days into the job. And uh, we had a, a critical incident where an individual was firing over a freeway overpass. And so I was given the call along with two additional units and I stopped as I saw uh, the two additional units arriving and they stopped alongside of me and they said, Sergeant, what are we going to do? And so imagine that critical incident and thinking whatever decision I'm getting ready to make right now could cost more lives. It could cost my officers lives. And was I concerned? Was there fear? Absolutely. 
But the one thing we all know for certain that you can't be consumed by fear. You have to respond because at the end of the day, people are counting on us. And that's what I see every day in this great police department when these men and women are engaging some of the most violent. I can tell you story after story here in Detroit with police officers on a, a, a traffic stop that appeared to be, and I never use the, the term routine because there is no such term, but a traffic stop, maybe for a traffic violation, and very quickly it erupts in violence and the officers respond without hesitation uh, and then go to work again the next day along with their partners. That's what defines heroes. Yeah, I know, Chief, I know when uh, they go through training, they know that one day they may have to step in front of a bullet to save a life. And I don't think they're reacting any differently with a virus, even though they know Absolutely. that if they catch it, they could die. They're still rushing in uh, to help save other lives. And you just have to take a moment each night before you go to bed to just say thank you and, and think about that, because not everyone can do that. And, and thank God they're there to do it. Absolutely. But if but, nothing else comes out of this, um, I hope that when this is all over, that people understand that we're all Americans. We're all in this together. Whatever divisions that we have, whether it's at the state or the, the federal level, we're Americans and we're all in this together as one. On that note, Chief, I know you have other things you have to go do. I appreciate you giving us and the city uh, an update. And hopefully Thank next you. time we talk to you, you'll be back in your office leading in person. And again, get better. Uh, Thank you. And, and I hope to see you very, very soon. Well, I appreciate both of you. Thank you. And, and to both of you, be safe. Uh, this is, I don't need to tell you the disease is real, but thank you. Okay. Take care. Okay. You, you too. Okay. Take care. All right. That was uh, interesting, Kevin. What did you think about that? Yeah, I know our Facebook Live uh, folks are still with us too, and uh, yeah, they're they're chiming in. They're they're happy to see him. Uh, when that first uh, news broke that he had had COVID, um, you know, it, it scares a lot of people. You don't know he's sixty years old, uh, maybe a couple sixty two, uh, sixty three. You know, 63, it's scary. It's scary for anybody. It's scary for everybody. Right. But it's great to see him there and leading and 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 for the officers uh, who work for him, they, they can see him and see that he's he's there supporting them in, in, in spirit and, you know, in, in giving direction. So it's great. Yeah. And I, I'm really happy that this new COVID, this fast test came out. Um, hopefully they'll be testing everybody with this soon to know if they have it, if they're a carrier. It feels like this is the next step to get these numbers accurate. Cause you and I both have talked about this. We both know people who've never had the official test, who's, who've definitely had it at home and it's mm -hmm. not being counted towards right. these horrific numbers. Um, so I think hopefully we'll all be tested very soon. I don't know if that's ever really gonna happen, but I'll that would be, <laughs> not all of us, but it'd be nice yeah. uh, to know what's really going on. Uh, but it was good to see the chief. We yeah. wish him well, we appreciate him coming on and I appreciate you, Kevin, as usual. And if if you like what you saw here today, go to our YouTube channel at Open Mike. Uh, the, the URL is YouTube backslash Mike Morris Law Firm. Look for the playlist Open Mike or OpenMikePodcast.com. We have over 30 episodes where we're talking to newsmakers and lots of interesting people. So go check it out. Subscribe. 
And uh, thanks for being with us for our first Facebook Live. Hopefully it won't be our last. And Kevin, you have a good weekend. Yeah, you stay safe too. We'll see you next time. Okay, bye-bye. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one my whole career. What you're going to hear. We got a lot of desperate people in the city. On my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts.